which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised to be faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. <clears throat> for if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two and three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Uh, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I'd like to thank Pat for giving me this text today. Alright, there we go. Knowing that I also had the other... I've had two of the three... You could say threatening texts, as the old Puritans used to call them, of the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 10. And therefore, there's a conspiracy against me here, I think, in this Bible study. <clears throat> Let me read the introduction. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Alright, Hebrews 10, 26-31. I say that only because the recorder started a little late. As my new American Standard Bible says, Christ is superior in priesthood and in the ministry of that priesthood. Quote, unquote. Aaron's priesthood is inferior to Christ's Melchizedek priesthood. His sacrifice is an eternal sufficient sacrifice which fulfills not only the demands of the law but also the demands of the Trinitarian Godhead. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The results, results of this finished work of Christ is the Christian's conscience is relieved of any guilt from sin. This is the confidence which our faith rests in. But this does not mean our eternal spiritual rest in Christ relieves the believer from the struggle against sin. Some of the Hebrew believers had forsaken corporate worship. The consequences of this unfaithfulness can lead to more sin, grievous sin, that can shame Christ. If they continue going on, as the scripture says, sinning willfully, they put their souls at risk. This new and living way in Hebrews 10.19 is speaking about an indwelling, the indwelling Spirit of God in us, fighting sin with us and for us. It is a life of union with Christ, mediating work. <clears throat> we have a great high priest who has and continues to do a great work in us. Our spiritual union in Christ gives Christ 
gives the Christian confidence, peace, assurance, faith, hope. These gifts of grace compel us to be concerned for our fellow brother and sister. The new and living way is not extroverted, but introverted or insular in a good sense, dynamic, not restricted, serving Christ while serving one another. This victorious spiritual reality runs directly into the struggles against sin and unfaithfulness. This is my challenge today. The contrast this not-so-uncommon lack of faith that we all experience in our lifetime, dependence on law and self and fearful of judgment when we are fully uh, forgiven by Christ, which no Christian should hold on to. With the sin of someone, someone or some people within the churches that are being addressed in the book of Hebrews, who has rejected grace altogether... There is a tendency for Christians, Charismatics have done a wonderful job on this, and I say that facetiously, in taking the warning text and putting them as applying to the Christian in a 100% sense. In the sense that they negate or forget about the finished work of Christ on the cross and his atoning work that is a once and for all sacrifice. Christians also emotionally can read this text, and I've met plenty of them over the decades, they read this text and they immediately, because they still struggle with sin, they apply it to themselves and as the threat is imposed upon them as if somehow their new Christian way of living is based on what they do rather than what Christ has done. And therefore, we have to separate the warning here to who it applies to in both the Christian realm, the believer, the truly regenerated Christian, and the non-Christian. That's my task. Well, starting startling and disturbing verses 26 through 31 is. It just is. It's graphic in the sense of its threat. Now, some people have argued with me, even in this church, uh, in a good sense. Disagreement is a good thing, by the way. I'm saying it in that context. But more emphasizing the warning aspect rather than the threat, because I said the Puritans and the Reformers used to speak of these texts as threats. Gospel threats, even. Well, here's the problem. If we just leave it as a warning, then God is somewhat put in a place where we look at him as a sentimental God who would never actually fulfill a warning and he only winks at the sin within the Christian of unfaithfulness. There's great severity in this. Great severity. I will end the study in relationship to though the very benefits of the severity benefit the Christian to endure and persevere. And that's the point behind it for the Christian. On the other hand, there are some people in the pulpit, not in the pulpit, well, maybe even some pulpits, but in the pews, where they may be living a life that is more of a worldly life, a life that is more, you could say, Christian sentimentalism, rather than a, a direct act of faith in the living God and His only Son, and dependence upon His atoning work. And to those who now forsake Christ and the very grace that they said but not actually held on to, they're the ones this threat truly applies. That they don't have salvation. They lived like a Christian and are not. And then they're, as chapter 6 says, their, their state is worse, is worse now than the last. So let's look at the specifics of this divine threat. Alright. What is the threat here? Let me just ask you a question right off the bat. What is the threat? 
I have three specific parts of the threat here. See if you can get them. Between verses 26 and 31. We have to identify the threat first. <coughs> what is it? What's that? Sinning deliberately. Willful sin, absolutely. But actually, that's the act. That's not the threat. That's the act of the Christian <laughs> believer or so-called Christian believer that leads to the consequences of the threat. No more sacrifice of sin. Oh, right there, number one. No more atonement. Now, automatically, and this is the beauty about a Christian who's been with the Lord for a while. We grow and are nurtured by grace. And in that grace, we learn about Christ and the power of that grace and the sustaining power of that grace and the indwelling Holy Spirit and how He preserves us. Even to the degree, as Peter says, He guarantees our inheritance. How could this be that the author would speak to Christians and say there's no more atoning sacrifice for you? But that's the threat. That's what's on the table, right? That's the threat. The, the new and living way, the curtain is closed. Okay. The, the sufficiency, the efficiency, and the certainty and reliability of the atonement is at stake if we misunderstand this text. Okay? Look at Hebrews, 12, I mean Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 14, because this is in the context... This is the reliability and certainty that the Christian mindset should bring into the church, into the assembly of God when he comes to the church or if he's at home and he reads this Bible and he reads this text. Verse 12. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Thank God for that. So you start reading text like this, you start to get a little shaky. The hairs get up on the back of your neck and you start saying, ooh, but I'm a sinner. Have I fallen into this? And we have to go back to text like that to calm us down and say, there's got to be something more to this text that reveals the truth of God. All right, what's the other part of the Hebrews threat? 10, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, Ida. Thank you. Um, what's the other part of the threat? Judgment, verses 27, 30, and 31. A certain terrifying expectation of judgment in verse 27, right? No more atonement. You cannot atone for sin. You've sinned too grievously. You've offended the Spirit of grace. And therefore, you have no more offering for sin. You're judged eternally. That's a threat. What's the third part of it? What's that? Alright. Alright. That actually is part of it. What does that within the context, what is that implying? I'll give you a hint, verse twenty eight. Dying without mercy. Yeah, dying without mercy. Eternal death. No more atoning sacrifice for you. You can't be forgiven. That's what that's saying. You cannot be forgiven if you have sinned willfully against God. That's the context. You will die in your sins eternally. That's the threat. 
by the way, God is not to be trivialized. We should not be like Ahab who trivialized sin, quote-unquote. Every Christian should take sin seriously within their life. Everyone. But every Christian also must not let their experience of sin overwhelm them emotionally where they intellectually, spiritually, mindfully, understandably forget of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. You cannot ever go there. Ever. And I do believe that when we get done with this text, you will understand with me that this specifically speaks to two different groups of people. Alright? So what kind of sin, by the way, has provoked God for such a response? We go back to Kelly's observation. Look with me at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Willfully. The Greek word here is deliberately. Willfully. Let me, by the way, has anybody ever here done a willful sin? I'll raise my hand first. Okay. Boy, we're shaking in our boots so far, right? There's the threat. Three components. Every one of us has sinned willfully. Ooh. Maybe I have to go like Martin Luther. Maybe we all should just create our own cloister, right? Become Augustinian monks. And then just pray that God may judge us based on our efforts. No. That is the response of many, though, when they see threats like this, isn't it? Very much so. How could I ever live up to the standards of God? That's exactly what enters many even Christians' minds. And the answer is, you never can! (laughs) I can't even wait to even teach this in advance of what God is saying about the Trinity here. Oh my goodness. Because the Trinity is in this too. Because, by the way, our very security is based upon the Trinitarian God and the securing of salvation. And you don't have to worry about the fact that you still sin. Every Christian does. And Christ loves them. Loves us. But we still have to deal with the text. Willful sin. We still sin willfully as Christians. The willful sin here is two things. Look over to verse 29. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified, by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? The book of Hebrews is intended to show you that Christ is better than the old covenant law and everything wrapped around it. Priesthood, the law itself, and everything in between. His covenant is a better covenant. That's the overall teaching point, you could say, of the book of Hebrews. That old covenant is old, it's obsolete, and it's ready to disappear, the author says. Ready to disappear. Why? Because the new covenant is new. Now what happens when you reject the new covenant? 
you reject the new covenant giver. Right? What happens when you reject the Spirit of Grace? By the way, capitalized. Holy Spirit. Spirit of Grace. Bringing to you this new covenant reality. This Trinitarian reality of the three persons of the Godhead who brings about salvation in your very soul. Right? And you've rejected Him willfully. Ooh. Oh, shaking in my feet because if I if I don't if I don't explain how this doesn't apply to you and I as regenerated Christians, we would go out here morning. We'd never step one more step in a church ever again because I could never live up to the level of expectation of God, right? Never could. Is everybody with me so far? All right. Here's the question, and Hendrickson actually puts it to the point. He says, is this the unforgivable sin that's spoken of in two individual texts within the Gospels? All right, let's go there. Uh, Randy, actually, do do me a favor, because we're going to go to one, but you can read the first one first. Mark 3, 25 through 29. And then the rest of us go to Matthew 12. Right, we're looking at Matthew 12, uh, 31 to 33. There we go. Can't see my notes anymore. All right, Randy, read yours. Okay, Mark 3, 25 to 29, right? No, Mark, yes, Mark 3, 25 to 29, yes. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless the first, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven for the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. Now, it's debated. We're not going to solve it all here. What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Okay. Scholars have been debating this for centuries. On the other hand, Hebrews chapter 10 is a very great, you could say, commentary on what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It is to trample underfoot the Son of God. It is to reject the Spirit of grace under the new covenant. For to trample underfoot Christ is to trample underfoot the very new covenant that He bought with His blood. As often as you drink this blood and drink this cup, you do show forth His death until He comes. For this is the new covenant in His blood. It is the new covenant in His blood. A better covenant. But is there an unforgiving sin? I believe Hebrews 10 is describing that. So now, in, let's just look at the text in Matthew 12, 31-33. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. I love the wording there. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, is it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall seek speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good, 
in its fruit good, or make the tree bad in its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. That text has as much relevance as the first two verses before it in relationship to our text in Hebrews 10. Within the church, majority of believers are bearing good fruit and have no need to worry about the, the, the security of their salvation. But then there are some whose fruit is bad and they have every legitimate, re- every legitimate reason to say to themselves, have I really rejected Christ even though I'm living a life as a Christian? I do the very outward external things to which is expected of me as a professing Christian, but I do not possess Christ. Every church has unbelievers within it. It's the reason why Paul said even Second Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves to see whether you're in a faith. After all of that sin, by the way, what does sin do? It confuses spiritual reality. And in that, there are people who fall in between the cracks thinking they're Christians when they're not. And therefore, examine yourselves. You could say, that's the spiritual therapy Paul recommends after those two letters. Examine yourselves. So here we have a blasphemy to which by, God, by, by the very words of Christ, he says, you in this one point cannot be forgiven. Well, the context here is, and we don't have time to study the text, is that Jesus' works have been attributed to Satan. And by the way, who saves? How are we saved? We are saved through the living and abiding work of the Holy Spirit who points to Christ. That's the Trinitarian order. The Holy Spirit was sent to lead you and I to Christ, to glorify Christ, to be saved in Christ. And when we are saved in Christ, we are saved and now in union with God in the three persons of the Godhead to which we have security that can never be taken away. But if you reject the Holy Spirit in the onset, you do not possess salvation according to this text. So you go into Hebrews chapter 10. The Spirit of grace has been insulted. Similar wording. Hendrickson says, yes, I believe that the two are the same. The unforgivable sin is rejecting the Spirit of grace and the new covenant. And the new covenant giver. Did you say in the new covenant or and the new covenant? Well, reject. I, I, you might have been said either. I'm well, it, it could be either, okay. depending on how I want to phrase it and what <clears throat> place I'm going to come from. The, 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 the northeast accent we have, you know what I mean? Doing this and that. And, and every once in a while, I know I've told most of you guys that that the reason why the Connecticut contingent has come up north to Massachusetts to worship uh, is to put a certain level of civility and, um, you know, um, professionality. Okay? Every once in a while, though, we do fall, as Pat has just pointed out. No, I, I wasn't trying to point out. I just wanted to make sure I understood your point. It's, a, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They make that one little change in John, right? right. Between a God and the God, right? right. Yeah, we... The person who has rejected the new covenant has rejected the new covenant giver. That's the point. Thanks. Are, are you going to attempt to actually see what that looks like in someone's mind or faith or walk? In what? In terms of the, the, the professor rather than the possessor? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think we saw that in chapter 6. They were tasting the good things of God. But tasting doesn't mean you're filled up with Him. And... and 
producing the fruit of it. Tasting is simply tasting. Like I said, I just had a very good, uh, I shouldn't say very good friend, I announced it at the Bible study. Uh, a friend of mine that I ministered for over eight years, he joined the service eventually. I witnessed the gospel to him. He's the son of, a, of the inn owners that we go to regularly up in the Cape. And he just died at his desk of alcohol poisoning. And he was a professor, not a possessor. And I told him one day in the hallway of the inn, I said, Nathan, I said, the difference between you and I is, is that you've got it up here. You've accepted the gospel as the world view that explains properly this mess that we have in the world. But I said, you don't have it in here. And you have to be a, prophet, a possessor. <clears throat> Language. How many times I, I, I have personal friends who turned out to be child abusers after going to Bible studies for years, if not a decade or so. Now we don't have too many of those friends. <laughs> no. No. But it is a very sad story, and it is a, a living example of being a professor rather than being well, a possessor. 230 of them in the Southern Baptist churches over the last 20 years, hidden, kept away by the leadership. Well, the thing no was, in the Roman Catholic Church. this occurred after yep. 10 years of Bible study. <laughs> Not it's before. even worse to take place, I would think, in like the Southern Baptist churches. It is. So let's go to back to two texts. Um, let's go back to Hebrews 3, the first warning. This willful sin, what does it look like? Well, actually, he's been describing to you and I what this willful sin is. All right? 16 through 19. He who provoked him when they had heard, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he not angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And in whom did not swear by should not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief? This is in the context of a, do, a divine threat. In other words, the the... The example of the Israel, Israelites as those who provoked God is an example of a religious, spiritually minded, even covenant people who didn't know God at all in relationship to His holy standards and expectations within the individual person. <coughs> and they provoked Him. Do you see that in Hebrews 10... To reject and to trample upon the Son of God is provoking God? Is not He the Father of the only begotten Son? It would be any no different than someone came to Kelly as a parent or anyone else in here. Ida. And someone tramples on your only son, Isaac. What would be Ida's response? How dare you trample over my son in great anger and righteously so. And we see provoking here in the book of Hebrews as the reason to which God acts in such a judgmental way. Eternal judgment. Eternal death. Go to Hebrews 6. 
And by the way, the provoking and the point I'm making here is that the provoking of Israel was intentional. It was willful. It was deliberate. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to what? What's your text say? My New American Standard says, Open shame! What's some other translation say? Public disgrace. Your willful sin has put him to an open shame and a public disgrace by you tasting but not partaking. So we shouldn't be surprised in the third warning that we have the same theme. If Hebrews, by the way, says Christ's sacrifice is a finished work for all sin, which we read in chapter 10. It's a finished work to all unintentional and intentional sin. Then why threaten the believers? This is the, this is the elephant in the room, right? Why threaten believers? Uh, and let me prove my point here. And I'm just going to read this. Context. Verse 21 of chapter 10. Since we have a great high priest. Verse 22. Let us draw near. Verse 23. Let us hold fast. Verse 24. Let us consider. Verse 25. Not forsaking our own. Verse 26. For we go on. Verse 29. How much severer a punishment to you. Verse 30. The author himself even includes himself in the threat. For we know. For we know. The context, brothers and sisters, is that the threat is spoken to the church and we have to somehow explain this. Right? It's the elephant in the room. By the way, some believers just arbitrarily blow it off. The Word of God is intended for us spiritually in every aspect of it. We don't want to blow off any text, even the difficult ones. Well, we have to recognize too, by the way, that when we're talking about willful, deliberate sin, the author is taking and hearkening back to Israel. A willful sin of provoking. There was a law given in Genesis I mean, Deuteronomy 17, where when Israel was found to be in idolatry, he had to go with two or three witnesses in order to judge them, and capital punishment was leveled against them. This was considered a willful sin, and as a lot of scholars like to point out, um, from a I'm trying to think of the, the word that would that would be used, but it's considered a high-handed sin. It's not just unintentional, because every person recognizes we do that, but intentional and willful and deliberate. I, when I do that, I, I can't get out of my mind. If my father 
was like this before he disciplined me. The force of that blow was less. When my father's hand was raised this high with the strap, there was no more other force that he could exert beyond that measure. And it was powerful. And it still is in my mind today, going to the beach, not being able to lay down on the blanket because I'd been beaten so. I love my dad, but he went over the edge sometimes. Tough man to love. But in one way, it is an accurate description of the final eternal judgment of God against those who have rejected the Son. A high-handed sin you have given, a high-handed discipline I will mete out. That's what hell's all about, brothers and sisters. That's what hell is all about. The strongest of punishment to those who are disobedient and have rejected the only begotten Son of God and have rejected the Spirit of grace of God to which God sent to this earth to bring about the gospel of grace and to illumine it. But the elephant is still in the room. Right? We haven't fully explained how this benefits us. Right? And oh, how it does. We're getting there. So this specific crime... As scholars say in verse 29, you have trampled underfoot the Son of God. I I think of that and I'm thinking about the imagery and the metaphorical aspect of it. What came to my mind was Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool. Right? The kingship of Christ ruling over the nations with a rod of iron and ruling to a degree when at the final judgment seat his rule will be final and finished. And every enemy of his will be under his feet. But an opposite imagery is intended here. Who is under the feet here in Hebrews 10? Christ. And who is the one who is stepping on him? The one who says they believe but rejects the gospel of grace. The one who wants to, in the overall context of the book of Hebrews, wants to go back to the Mosaic law, if not permanently, at least impartial. You see, salvation is solely by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. And when you add to that any little bit, you trample on the Son of God. Trample on Him. And trample on this new covenant blood shed for you and I. Just trample. So what does it mean? It means to reject the new covenant in Christ. Chapters 1 through 10 show that Christ's priestly sacrifice in his shed blood is a sufficient work. How dare any Christian taste or professing believer taste and then reject? Because remember, the overall context of the Hebrews is those who say in Christ is not quite enough. They're showing up in your assemblies. In fact, they've even now starting to affect the body as a whole. Some are not even coming to church any longer. Forsake not the assembling of the brothers, right? That's in the context. 
grace. And I love it. I'm doing a study for in the summer when we get done with the Trinitarian study and I think it's Psalm 103. I think I was talking to Randy or somebody. Darlene. I was talking to Darlene. When we come to church, God is waiting for us to bring our praises, to bring our love, to bring all of ourselves to Him. And then you stop coming to church and you want to say, well, Christ plus something? Let's, you know, by, you know the Jewish believers, are, they're, they're adding to Christ's finished work. Well, we still have to believe Moses in some aspects, right? No. Moses even spoke of a prophet to come after him. It was that important for him to say, there's one better than I. Is even affecting the churches. Secondly, trampling under the foot of the Son of God is implying also the the insulting of the Spirit of Grace, who is the only person of the Trinity who can illumine and teach those who are considering considering to willfully reject Him. Your only hope is the Spirit of Grace, and then you're not listening to Him, right? This, by the way, my explanation of what it means to trample underfoot the Son of God are the nails in the coffin of a soul who rejected the only means to which the Godhead has determined to save man, Christ and Him alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes in the Father but by me. It's the exclusionary aspect of the Gospel that is the most offensive part. Someone comes along to you and say, Oh, by the way... So we might be able to avoid a little bit of persecution. Come with me. Because you're in an area where there's a lot of Hebrews. A lot of Jewish people. Come with me. You can have your Christ plus the law. And the author of Hebrews says when the, priest, when the law changes of necessity, the priesthood changes also. You don't have an option. It's Christ alone and Him alone. And we may be persecuted for it. Lastly, what does it mean to trample underfoot the Son of God? This means the Godhead has been insulted. Not just Christ. Not just the Spirit. But the Godhead and all three persons have been insulted because all three are involved in the salvation work of the individual person. Hebrews 10. Let's go back there if you're not there. Let me just point out the Trinitarian Godhead. You know, I have been emphasizing in the Tuesday night Bible study, we must, as believers, have to wake up every morning and be more observant of the Trinitarian reality in our life. First, you open up those doors and nature screams His personhood. But then also you have your devotions in the morning and you read your Bible and you need the lens of the Trinity as well to look within this text themselves and see if God is speaking to you as these three distinct persons of this one unified God and saying, I'm here in your presence. This is acknowledging the Trinitarian reality in our life as a Christian as we learn about Christ. 
So let me just show you where it is. You already know the two places. They're very clear. Verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Second person of the Trinity. As regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant of which he is sanctified has insulted the Spirit of grace. Third person of the Trinity. Verse 30. For we know him. First person of the Trinity who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. They are all three witnesses against those who would trample on the Son of Man. And the Father and the Spirit are angry with those who only live a life of profession rather than possession. Yes, brother. The use of the first, second, third persons, is that suggesting that the first person is greater than the third person? No. Oh, absolutely not. Okay. And, and you're, a, you're, a, you're, a, you're a bad boy for trying to plug that one in now in this study. We have some innocent ears. There we go. They can misunderstand one, right. two, three. No, like no. There is no. There is no subordination inferiority, as the scholars would call it. They're all equal of substance and essence. They have a distinctiveness in their work. The Father sends the Son. The Son fulfills the Father's will in securing salvation through His shed blood. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is sent by the Father in order to secure and to make possible the very means of grace and salvation that comes through Christ. In other words, the Trinity is involved in your salvation. And the Trinity... It's not just the Spirit of God. You cannot separate, as scholars say, that the individual work of one person is solely the individual work without seeing also the other two persons involved in that work. And therefore, the work of illumination in your heart that the Holy Spirit does is also the work of the Father and the Son in your very same heart. Well, that's why people have to be careful too with the Jesus, uh, you know, Talk about the 22nd Psalm. Mm. People say, and I understand the dramatic effect people are looking for, but to say mm-hmm. that the Godhead was about to be broken up is just a complete failure in theology. <laughs> you know what I mean? And people say that, and I understand, in a sense, you know, trying to make it as profound as possible, right. but there's this somehow suggestion that you could break up that ontology, the ontological trinity like that is just not helpful. Understanding the trinity. And I'm not saying everyone understands the Trinity equally. It's a scholarly approach. And scholars still call it a mystery. Mm. So right there is... But any Christian who does not attempt to understand God and His three distinct persons Mm. limits his theology. Mm -hmm. Limits it. Limits his understanding of God in an overall sense. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 32, verse 18. Saying to Israel... You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Israel did that. And there are those still within the pews of some churches today, and most churches today, that at least have a percentage of people who are living a life that is a lie. So how does this help us understand the gospel threat? This warning that is so severe Contextually, it is certainly given to the church. I went through that. Let me give you a couple of places here. Salvation is a new covenant reality. 
If the hearers of this letter desire to return to the Old Covenant or return even in part, salvation cannot be resident in the person who says they believe. It is faith plus nothing else. Therefore, the warnings of God fall on you or them. Henderson likes to point out, he says, possibly this threat is to one person in the church. Possibly. Secondly, if someone rejects the Holy Spirit's work of grace, their faith is not a saving faith. Therefore, like the other two texts in Hebrews, warnings, the author is focusing on unbelievers who have rejected the Son of God's new covenant and the Spirit of grace. Interesting, in Hebrews 12, 16, the, the exhortation is do not... Actually, I'm going to go there. Because I'm only studying ahead for my, my portion. And it's, it's Hebrews 12. It's not... But I looked at that and I said, boy, doesn't that fit the context of the overall book? For there, let's see, uh, let me see, uh, verse 15 and 16 of Hebrews 12. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That's what we're talking about here, by the way, today in Hebrews 10. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Is there anyone in the church who says they are born again by the grace of God and not living in the grace of God? Who are living more like Esau who at any moment for the sake of even a piece of bread would sell his own birthright? Is there anyone in the church when persecution begins in America would they sell their own birthright as an eternal son of God, an adopted child of God, for that piece, that meal, and I'm using this as a metaphor, that little piece of bread that says, I'll avoid persecution by conforming to the world. May it never be so, sister. Absolutely. But when I saw that text, that's the people that the author is pointing to with the severity of judgment. If you have rejected Christ. There is no hope for you. And this is why when people say within the church, oh, so-and-so is questioning their salvation. And within leadership, we get that sometimes, you know, personally. People ask us, and you know, we'll keep it personal, of course. Um, or someone maybe does something that says, maybe they're not a Christian, right? It is the reason why we teach texts like this to test the soul and see if the metal of Christ is within it. It is the very purpose why it's written in the Scriptures that no one would go to hell thinking that they were a Christian. That's the very purpose of this text. Because we have been given the treasure of the field. God's not taking away His treasure. That's the certainty of Christ in the, in the Christian walk. But I will warn you, brothers and sisters, and actually I'm speaking to the choir here. Trust me, I know it. wish I was speaking this to the whole body. 
Perseverance is critical to reassure yourself that you're in Christ and in union with God. Without persevering, you may read a text like this and start thinking, is that me? Is that me? How do you accomplish that, practically speaking, without putting yourself under sort of a law bondage mm. and, and enjoy the grace and mercies mm. in, the, in the truth of the gospel? Mm. You know what I mean? Like someone here might say, boy, I don't know if I've been living up to the, to the right. standard of what a Christian right. is, and I feel like I have failed, maybe I have yeah. quoted committed the unpardonable sin they might think that applies to them or our right. sin will, willfully and there's no hope for me right right. well I always I, I love the text where it says when Jesus turned to his disciples after many left him will you leave me also and they say where are we going to go Lord you have the words to eternal life mm. or the two men on to on the road to Emmaus with Jesus I use that one commonly in situations like Gary is describing after they had taken stuff, they recognized him. And after Jesus disappeared, they said to one another, Did our hearts not burn within us when he spoke to us? The Christian who perseveres endures because his heart still burns. Even though there's water sometimes because of our worldliness and our sin is doused on it, the Holy Spirit is not a fickle spirit or person. He will not allow you to go astray. He does the work of Christ after the one sheep that goes astray and traces them down to bring them back into the fold. And if you don't experience that and there's dead silence for a long period of time, you have to ask yourself, why is God not coming and chasing me down? And maybe that you're happy in your sin and in your lack of relationship with Him. And I can't cover every degree because some, cre- as Gary has quoted R.C. Sproul, Christians have fallen. How, how's it go? Fallen. Christians fall seriously and radically, right. but never fully or finally. Final, fully or finally. And in the end, yes, there are some Christians who have fallen grievously. But it's not a one statement answer to the question, anyways. It's a life examination answer, isn't it? Is it? This might be helpful if it's correct. Um, is the willful sinning or the deliberate sinning a singular sin that happens once and then you are disqualified? Or is it a lifestyle that's described by sinning deliberately? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I would say more singular as an overall statement of fact in a certain person's life in Hebrews 10. But the life itself can be the very windful, you could say willful life that is rejected and trampled underfoot the Son of God as well. So can you do this unforgivable sin and then come to a point in your life where you repent, turn back, and become a faithful follower? Or, if you do this, is there no hope? Well, and that's the thing. Because the Holy Spirit saves, the unforgivable sin can only be fully realized when the person dies. Because the Holy Spirit still is God of authority. In other words, He is God in the authority of the Godhead to save. The elect of God. And if someone is in this position that we're describing and at their last 
just before their last breath, they're like the thief on the cross, then we could never say that they did the unforgivable sin because the Spirit of God forgave at the very end. So, it, but it's not, it's not this, this, it's more of the, you could say, the heart of the person, the lifestyle of the person, rather than just an individual statement of the person. Although the statement could be, I reject Christ and I'm done with him. And yes, that is still possible as well. A person goes to hell because they don't obey the gospel. Right. And it's a good idea for us as Christians to visit the cross daily. Draw me nearer and nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Mm. I think should be the theme that we bring every day in our minds yeah. to go back to the cross and remind ourselves what a debt he paid for me. He Amen. loved me and gave himself for me. And uh, boy, that, that will reassure our heart that we belong to him. Yeah. You know what the beauty of the new covenant is? Paul says to the Galatians, he says that the law became a tutor to lead us to Christ. Now the Holy Spirit is our tutor that leads us to Christ. Right? Tutoring us in the grace of God day after day after day. If you don't read your Bible, if you're amongst that percentage I quoted in the sermon a couple months ago or whatever, 75%, of, 73% of Americans say they're Christians and 40% of them don't even read their Bible. If you're amongst that group, well, guess what? You're going to have a tough Christian life if you are a Christian. A very tough life. Uh, true believers do not provoke God as Israel did. Not to say they can't sin grievously and grieve the Holy Spirit, but they do not provoke Him in a permanent, determined way, willfully, where God labels Him as this person who is trampled underfoot, the Son of God. Grace is precious to the Christian. It's the very means and source. It's the fountain to which you and I continue on in life. This is what it means to go on sinning in verse 26. A sin that is, as Hendrickson said, of one's own free will, willfully rejecting God over and over and over again within their life, within their statements, within their, you could say, association with the world rather than within the church and so on and so on. Like the Old Testament, when a person, group, or even a tribe were severely judged by God, it sent a message to the rest of Israel to not trivialize sin. So these three warnings of chapters 3, 6, and 10 do the very same thing for the church. And let me read this. I, I think I got it from Hengerson. I should, we should all devote this as a memory text. Deuteronomy 13.11. You might want to write this one down. But I believe that this is the sentiment of to which the author writes the Hebrews in order to shore their faith up, not to tear it down, and to point out maybe even just one person in the body who has even stopped coming to the body and say to that person, you've trampled underfoot the Son of God, but I'm doing this as a general church-wide warning to you all. Deuteronomy 13.11 says this, Then... All Israel will hear and be afraid. And no one among you will do such an evil thing again. It's a warning to the church so you would not act like those who fell in the wilderness. It's a warning so we might live a more holy life. It's a warning that says you have every reason to be bold 
and to boldly go unto the throne of grace. But I am warning you that God is not to be trivialized. He is a consuming fire. And by the way, the analogies of that we will see in Hebrews 12 about how God treats us tenderly and not as He caused, a, you could say, a fear amongst the Israelites at the base of that mountain because we worship a heavenly throne, a new city that God only has built. But that doesn't take away the seriousness of serving this living God. It just doesn't. And the more I think that we fear in a holy fear, I'm not talking, as, as Martin Luther used to say, not as a fear as a slave unto his master, but a fear, a reverent fear. That's fear, and a lot of Christians, evangelicals, have somewhat denigrated the fear as being without any shaking and trembling. And I tell you one thing, I praise the Lord that in prayer, in worship, there are moments we should be shaking in our boots in fear and trembling out of holy worship. Because He's that great of a God. But that doesn't take away any faith and trust in Him by doing so. I guess I'm just pointing to another, maybe a study in the future, a topical study that Pat's going to do on the fear of God and the proper understanding of it. Mm. Right, brother? You know, there you go. Let's finish. All right, let's finish in prayer. Father in heaven, we we fear you with holy love. That you love us so much, O oh Lord, that you don't pamper us as children, O oh Lord, and give us everything that we want at this period of time in our life. You even send discipline and trial and testing our way, O oh Lord, to provide the righteousness we need to endure in the faith. And that even includes the warnings, O oh Lord. So which, O oh Lord, we would not repeat the sins of others who fell. And so we love you in that fear. We love you in this relationship, O oh Lord, as a father and a child. And as a, your adoptive children, O oh Lord, we live faithfully as the Son of God did to his own Father in heaven. And O oh, fill us with your Holy Spirit this day as we worship in the fear of God through the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Home right there? Uh, I don't know. I think I learned technology and very.